So if you've had the good fortune of meeting my sister, Mandy, which some of you have, or you've heard me talk about her before, you probably know she's one of my favorite human beings on the planet. And I count myself extremely blessed to call her my sister. Um, but that doesn't mean that things were always super easy between us growing up, okay? Growing up together, our relationship, like the relationship of a lot of siblings, like maybe the relationship of my own kids with each other, it was complicated. So I think of this incident that took place on my seventh birthday. Uh, that was the year I was thrilled to be given a first-generation Cabbage Patch doll, okay? This was quite the treasure, and there was no gift that would really make quite the punch as opening up one of those dolls, like the year they came out, okay? It felt like such a big deal to open that present from my parents on my big day. However, my elation of receiving this ultimate treasure was significantly lessened when my parents brought out another box, similar looking to mine, and presented it to my three-year-old sister. To be clear, it was not her birthday, okay? We were in the midst, my birthday is July 3rd, so it's right in that Independence Day weekend. So we're in the midst of an old school summer road trip, which we usually were in Independence Day week, um, a vacation in which we were traveling across the country in the back of a van, and my sister that summer got chicken pox. And so my parents announced that for her suffering, she also deserved a gift, she also deserved a Cabbage Patch doll. Now, as I've become a parent myself, this logic does make some sense to me now. My parents were likely trying to minimize the rivalry between us, recognizing that a toy of this much value would probably cause a lot of envy in our home. And so they looked for some excuse to get one for both of us, right? My sister's untimely chicken pox in the middle of our family vacation felt like as good a cause as any, but to me, this was a profound injustice because it was my birthday. My sister had had hers a few months before and I hadn't gotten any presents then. In fact, I didn't get a fancy doll when I had had the chicken pox either. So this was unfair. Why should I have to share the thrill of my special day and its most special gift with my annoying, snotty-faced, diaper-wearing, chicken-pox-picking sister? It was bad enough that I had to suffer the tragedy of a summer birthday that nearly always took place in the middle of a family vacation or when all my friends were on their family vacations, but this indignity was too much. So I resented my sister and my parents for a long time after that event, much longer than I am proud to admit as an adult. <laughs> the memory lingers like 35 years later. <laughs> I think because it was like the first memory I really have of like deep rivalry, right? It's that like first deep memory of like the knot in your stomach, anger, envy, competitive energy. And sadly that would characterize my experience on and off with my sister through the years of our childhood. I found myself experiencing both the greatest love and affection for her, which I now fully am able to live into, but at the time I also could easily turn on a dime to betrayal, frustration, 
jealousy. Perhaps some of you who've grown up with siblings know what I mean. Well, today is our second, our next teaching, maybe third, in our series of called, I'm calling a story-shaped faith, where we're exploring these specific stories um, from the life of Jesus, teachings of Jesus, called the parables, and considering the ways that they were meant to provoke Jesus' listeners and shape the spirituality of the people he spoke to, as well as how they might provoke our own. Now, as it so happens, this is also the first Sunday of the season of Lent, which is the roughly six-week period that much of the Christian church has used to mark time and to, like, to observe the roughly 40 days leading up to Easter through a time of meditation on the life of Jesus, as well as potentially unique spiritual practices that kind of rekindle our connection with the divine. Now, some folks during Lent choose to take on some sort of practice of deprivation, maybe a fast, uh, taking a break from a certain food or drink or social media that might help them lean more clearly on the divine for the support rather than those things. Others choose to take on new spiritual practices, just like add on rather than take away. Maybe extra reading, extra Bible reading or prayer or something else. So throughout this season here at Haven, we're going to try something. We're going to be inviting you each week into some practices, and we're going to be drawing them from some of these parables, kind of having them connect. Maybe you could say we're going to like move towards hopefully some sort of story-shaped Lent. So this Lent, these practices will be connected with um, these parables, which are stories that I think were meant not just to communicate some theological truth, but to provoke some sort of meaningful action in the lives of the people who heard them. As one biblical scholar has called them, they're stories with intent. But discerning that intent can be a challenge. The work of discernment, though, I think, is what makes these stories interesting and useful in shaping our spirituality. So as we wrestle together, recognizing that all of these stories open themselves up to multiple interpretations, oh no, Can I get a hand real quick while I put this back? Thank you. I must be a loser. We need maybe some of the papers. Perfect. All right. I think we're good. That could have been worse. Thank you. Um, Yeah, all of these stories open themselves up to different interpretations to revealing different challenges to different ones of us in different seasons of our lives. And my hope is we can experience, through kind of entering into all of that, the fresh impact of Jesus' words in meaningful ways. So we are going to go ahead and look at one of these parables today, one that I hope is going to be helpful as we begin Lent together. And we're going to turn to, this is a parable that's found only in the book of Matthew. Uh, beginning at the beginning of chapter 20. So I'll read it for us. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the workers for the standard wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And when it was about nine o'clock in the morning, he went out again and he saw others standing around in the marketplace without work. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too and I will give you whatever is right. So they went. And when he went out again about noon, 
And 3 o'clock that afternoon, he did the same thing. And about 5 o'clock that afternoon, he went out and found others standing around and said to them, well, why are you standing here all day without work? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, well, you go and work in the vineyard too. When it was evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the workers, pay them their wages, starting with the last hired until the first. When those hired, about five o'clock came, each received a full day's pay. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each one also received the standard wage. When they received it, they began to complain against the landowner, saying, these last fellows worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who bore the hardship and burning heat of the day. And the landowner replied to one of them, friend, I am not treating you unfairly. Didn't you agree with me to work for the standard wage? Take what is yours and go. I want to give to this last man the same as I gave to you. Am I not permitted to do what I want with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So this is a story. It's commonly known as the workers in the vineyard. And it's meant to surprise its audience and to provoke them. But how? Let's start by just considering some of the fundamentals of the story. We're just going to talk through, summarize what's happening here. So there's this person who owns this property. He's hiring day laborers to work in his vineyard. The translation we're looking at calls him um, a landowner. But the Greek word here is something called oikodespote, which literally meant master of a house. Okay, leader of a house. Um, it's a word we see multiple times in the New Testament, rather generic, just to describe a head of household. This guy leads his estate, and in this case, the estate includes a vineyard, so it's not wrong to call him a landowner as well. Um, so this master of the house goes into town early in the morning. The standard time to get laborers would have been about 6 a.m. So he finds those folks at 6 a.m. in the field and brings them to work in the fields for the day. Um, this is all kind of normal, right? He offers them work in exchange for what the Greek says, the actual, um, what's actually in the Greek is one denarius. Uh, ours has been translated the standard wage, which is essentially what it was. One denarius uh, was not a lot of money, but it would feed you and your family modestly for a few days. So for a day laborer in Jesus's time, getting about a denarius a day was pretty essential. So though the story starts innocuously enough, people are being hired at the expected time, the expected place, the expected rate. Even here at the jump, Jesus' listeners would probably have noticed, been at least a little bit surprised. Because Jesus' audience would likely have been puzzled to hear that it's the landowner himself who goes into the village to find the laborers to hire. And rather than sending his steward, his manager, which was typically the custom, and we do hear in the story that he has a manager. And so rather than sending him to go get the laborers, this landowner goes himself. And with that small detail, Jesus seems to be communicating right at the beginning. This landowner is not your average boss. This, there's something different about this master of the house. So the landowner hires his workers at 6 a.m., and they go into the field and they begin to harvest. But a few hours later at nine, the boss is in town again. 
sees more people without work, invites them to come into the field too, and then at noon, and then at three, the scene repeats, and this is now gonna be really considered strange. Like, when the day is more than half over, why is this guy still hiring? It's doubtful that the landowner, like, just underestimated how much work he needed. Okay, Jesus doesn't say anything about, he hires folks and then realized, like, oh, there's so much more I need help with, right? He also doesn't say anything about, like, he hires these people and then he's like, oh, they're actually not very good workers, so I'm going to get some more, right? It wasn't the case that he hired some folks and then realized they were, you know, too slow. No, the problem the master seems to be responding to doesn't seem to be so much about how much labor need he has as much as how many people he encounters who are in need of labor. Does that make sense? It's a difference. It's not so much about how much labor need he has as much as how many people he finds that need labor. And this point becomes especially clear when he goes back at five o'clock, basically an hour left in the workday, and he still finds people to hire. And he asks them, why are you standing here all day without work? Because no one hired us, they tell him. These are folks willing to work, wanting to find ways to meet their needs, to pay for their food and for the kids, but for whatever reason, they haven't been given an opportunity. So even though the day is almost over, this different kind of landowner gives them an opportunity. And then we get to the end of the day, the time for payment, and this is the most surprising turn the story takes. The master calls over his steward, he calls over the day laborers, and he instructs his manager to hand out the payment, starting with those who were hired last. Now, we didn't hear any specifics about what he was going to pay them. All we know is that everyone later in the day, he promised to just pay them what he said, whatever is right, whatever is right. The only defined fee agreement Jesus tells us about is the one at the beginning. At 6 a.m., he told people, work for a day, get a denarius, get your standard day's wage. But here, the five o'clockers, they step up to the steward, and he hands them a denarius. And then the three o'clockers get the denarius. Same with the laborers who've been there since noon, and then the ones who came at nine. And then finally, our 6 a.m. hires approach the manager, and they too are handed the same denarius. Yet, though this is what they had agreed to work for, Though it is what they've been laboring all day expecting, when they're given it, the first hired workers aren't pleased. Maybe like me getting a Cabbage Patch Kid. (laughs) So why? When those workers were hired, they felt like they understood what they were signing up for, and they were right in terms of the fee they agreed to work for. What they hadn't imagined is how others in the same field might be treated. So their response about whether a denarius was a fair wage for a day's work, it wasn't actually about whether it was enough. The response was about whether it was right for them to be paid the same as somebody else who worked less, right? These workers were taking issue with what felt like an unfairness in which they were the victims. This sense of unfairness led to anger and resentment toward their employer. They complained to him about the perceived injustice of it all. And the landowner gets why they're angry. But he's not persuaded he's done anything wrong. In his mind, he's paid what what he promised to each of them. And in this case of those who worked later in the day, he's given them perhaps more than might have been expected. 
but he gave them what he believed was right. And as he points out, that's his right to do. It's an act of compassion, of generosity, and if he wants to be generous with his own resources, why should anyone fault him for that? Why must these workers begrudge their neighbors the good fortune that they have had? So hopefully what I've just described was like a good summary of what's happening in this story. We all kind of understand how it's working. So what kind of responses do we think Jesus was trying to provoke in his listeners by sharing it? How was he trying to shape the faith of them? How might he be trying to shape our own? I think it really depends with this story on where you're coming from. You see, this story features multiple characters with different life experiences, and perhaps in the same way, it's supposed to provoke us, its listeners, in different ways, depending on from which place in society we encounter it. So before I say more about that, I want to name that there's something about this very old story that reminds me of a more contemporary conversation. In recent years, our collective has been having a very needed conversation about the difference between equality and equity, right? The difference between equality and equity. I have a picture. I'm guessing you may have seen it. I wish I had a screen for this, so I'll just have to do the best. Okay, this has been, you know, shared a lot in social media in recent years, okay? The equality versus equity graphic. And for those in Zoom, you should have that slide for this. Okay, so the idea is, in this picture, this is what equality looks like. Everyone has the same size box, but because not everyone is the same height, they can't all see over the fence, right? And then in the equity image, they have different size boxes based on what they need in order to see over the fence, right? It's a popular graphic. It's been used widely in my kids' schools. And yes, in some ways, some people will take issue with how it's overly simplistic, but I think it communicates at the core this truth that ultimately, to create a more just society, we don't need to give everyone the same thing, which would be equality, we actually need to give everyone what they actually need to thrive, and that would be equity. So when we acknowledge that our cultural systems of oppression have privileged the access of certain people, particularly straight, cisgender, heterosexual, white men, to resources that help them thrive like land, like education, like employment opportunities, then we recognize that we need to do more for those who have been denied that access historically to help close the gap, right? So the trans woman of color might need more support in thriving than the straight white dude, okay? Treating everyone the same doesn't make things more just, it only continues to perpetuate the unjust systems, right? So I wonder if millennia before we've been having this conversation collectively, multiple millennia before, of equality versus equity, I wonder if Jesus wasn't trying to point us in a similar direction with this story. You see, Jesus' story features this master of a house whose economics don't seem to fit capitalism. The landowner doesn't seem to be motivated by exploitation of labor. He doesn't primarily seem motivated by generating profit. 
If that was his motive, he would have paid each person as leanly as possible, achieving maximum efficiency, right? Those who started working at noon would only get half a denarius so that the profits could be maximized. This would be equality, paying every person the same hourly wage for the amount of work done. But this doesn't seem to be the way this landowner works. His primary interest seems to be the welfare of his laborers, all of them. He wants to make sure that no one goes hungry tonight, not those who've worked for him all day and not those who just showed up for the last hour. Everyone needs something to eat. Everyone by the end of the day gets it. No, the denarius is not a fortune for anyone. It's not like uh, such a, like so amazing generosity. It's not abundance, but it will keep each laborer and their household fed for another few days. The master isn't as concerned about how much each person contributed to the whole. He's concerned with what each worker needs to thrive. This is for him the wage that is right. Yes, on one hand, he needs work done, of course, and he's compensating these folks to do it. That benefits him. But he also seems to want to use his resources in an open-handed way, in a generous way that invites folks into the dignity both of participation, giving everyone meaningful work, but also makes sure that no matter what obstacles blocked them from coming in sooner, everyone has what they need to move forward. So how are we to view this head of household? Many Christians, since this story was first told, have understood Jesus to be telling an allegory of some sort in which God is the landowner. It's certainly possible that Jesus did intend that understanding. From that point of view, God is one who, who's a God of, of equity. God sees what each person needs and wants to supply those needs, even if it means greater abundance and generosity directed towards some rather than others. But if Jesus was trying to make this point about what I would say is maybe the economy of the divine, I don't think it was only meant to describe the way God sees us and thinks about distributing resources to us. In one of the ways this parable provokes, I think, Jesus seems to be inviting those who have resources of their own to consider following this divine model. I think he's challenging the wealthy to consider how they might be more like this unique landowner. Okay, so perhaps none of us own a vineyard. Maybe we don't even own any piece of property. Maybe we don't have a business. Still, we too may have the privilege of having some control of some resources. Some household we could say we are the master of, whether or not even we own a home. To us, I think Jesus' story prompts a challenge. What might it mean for you to consider the way you distribute the resources you have to be less about maximizing profit, less about what's most economically savvy from a capitalist framework, and more about generously participating in the work of equity? How might that impact your spending? How might that impact your hiring, if you have the ability to hire? How might it impact who you do business with, who you don't? If you thought of your own way of dispensing resources as participating in equity.
And of course, financial resources are only one way in which we have the capacity to pour into others. Letting Jesus' words provoke us a bit further, we might ask, what other resources could we be open-handed with? Could we be equitable with? How might we use our time as a resource? How might we contribute our gifts, our talents, that which we do well? What access to resources or opportunity, just like networks that we're connected to, that could be leveraged for others who, who need that access more? What even about words and actions of care and compassion? Intentional acts of kindness, that peacemaking that Jeannie was calling us to. I think sometimes we undervalue how much, how needed that is. And I would say two years into this pandemic of so much isolation and people feeling so uncared for and unloved, that is itself a huge resource. How might we distribute our willingness to listen to another's pain and reflect back care? How might we distribute our ability to like show up with a cooked meal or a ride or a set of moving boxes? How might we think about releasing those kind of resources in ways that help others thrive and bring greater equity? So this to me is the first way I think this parable provokes. It challenges us to consider what resources we have that we could deploy differently for the benefit of the community, for the furthering of equity. As scholar Amy Jill Levine points out, Jesus's focus is often less directly on the good news to the poor than on the responsibility of the rich. Jesus is calling the rich to step up. Of course, the master of the house isn't the only character here, right? So some of us might resonate more with a different character. Let's consider for a moment the beneficiaries of this alternative kind of compensation. Those who experience the grace of receiving enough, even though they didn't have the opportunity to work all day. We don't know quite what these folks expected. We don't know if they were surprised the moment they were given the denarius, but I think it's fair to imagine they were pleased by the outcome. They were grateful to have food for their table because of the landowner's focus on their well-being over their productivity. They were able to feed their families because they were given more per hour than the others. At the end of the day, they had enough. I wonder what encouragement Jesus might have intended this story to offer those who have not had the same opportunities as others have had to provide for themselves, those who have not had the same privilege and access to secure what they need to thrive. If that's you, I'd suggest perhaps this is intended to be encouragement to folks in that space, waiting on the side of the road who feel like they're being overlooked or even held back, wondering when this opportunity will come. Jesus is saying, God sees you. God cares for you. The divine is committed to you and to you receiving everything you need. And you're speaking up and you're showing up and you're advocating for what you need, just like those workers who were still standing in town at 5 p.m. They hadn't given up. All of those efforts are not in vain. God is with you. And the divine is calling others to join and participate actively in the work of peace and justice making. God is calling the divine kingdom to be participating in this making of greater equity because we know you need it. I think Jesus, I think that is a word of encouragement, I hope, for those who feel like they have gotten the short end of the stick. 
And I also think Jesus might be encouraging these folks, where blessing and opportunity come your way, receive them fully, without hesitation. Take in all the reparations. Take them all in when they come your way that are given to you without embarrassment, without apology. These are gifts intended for your thriving. Bless you when they come your way. Receive them. Finally, we need to consider the character who seems to get the biggest poke in Jesus' provocation. Those grumbling workers who resent that they have not been paid more than a denarius. They're the ones who, like myself as a child, with their siblings, cry, no fair. These folks remind me again of our graphic. They see injustice. But that's because their focus is on the size of the box, right? They're thinking about things from an equality frame. And stuff just doesn't look equal. Why isn't her box the same as mine? Their focus isn't so much on whether they have what they need to see, right, or to pay the bills, but on how what they've received compares with somebody else. Now, described this way, when I talk about things like issues of justice and equity in our current day, it might be easy for some of us who are rel relatively privileged and have been a part of this justice conversation for a while to feel some distance from these folks. I mean, we could probably imagine them, you know, the folks who are like fighting affirmative action and we're saying, well, that's not me. I'm for that and I'm for Black Lives Matter. But when it comes to the actual work of like letting go of that which we feel entitled to, when it comes to seeing someone else get an opportunity that we would have loved to have had, when it comes to that other kid in the household getting that Cabbage Patch doll, <laughs> resentment can still rear its ugly head. So many of you know probably the social researcher and best-selling author, Brene Brown. I highly recommend her most recent book, Atlas of the Heart. And in it, she takes her readers through an exploration of different human emotions, trying to kind of adequately map them. That's why it's called the atlas. Um, and describe and categorize the variety of things that humans feel. And here's what I found interesting about what Brene Brown says about resentment. First, she describes her own experience with the emotion. For years, she says, I assumed that resentment was a form of anger related to my perfectionism. I felt mostly resentful towards people whom I perceived to be not working or sacrificing or grinding or perfecting or advocating as hard as I was. You want to see me go into full tilt resentment? Just watch someone tell me, yeah, I stopped working on it. It's not actually perfect, but it's good enough. Or I know it's due tomorrow, but I'm wiped out, so I'm packing it in. Or I don't get involved in those issues. That really doesn't affect me. That really made her peeved. Then Brene describes a light bulb moment she had when interviewing another author and researcher on emotions, a guy named Mark Brackett, and she was asking him his take on resentment and saying, like, don't you think it's part of the anger family? And he was like, no, resentment is part of envy. And for Brene, when she heard that, it's like something clicked. Oh, resentment is part of envy. I'm not mad because you're resting. I'm mad because I'm so bone tired and I want to rest. But unlike you, I'm going to pretend I don't need to. I'm not furious that you're okay with something that's really good and imperfect. I'm furious because I want to be okay with something that's really good and imperfect. 
Your lack of work is not making me resentful. My lack of rest is making me resentful. Oof, right? As Brene describes it, resentment is usually connected to an unmet, perhaps even unrecognized need we have inside. So after her aha moment, she describes how she now thinks about resentment. When I start to feel resentful, she said, instead of thinking, what is that person doing wrong? Or what should they be doing? I think, what do I need, but I'm afraid to ask for? What do I need, but I'm afraid to ask for? How often do those of us who find ourselves pricked by resentment stop to consider that? How many of us are carrying some unacknowledged need and letting it fester into resentment? There are probably all kinds of needs like this. For Brene, it was the need for rest. For myself as a kid, I think maybe it was perhaps the need to know that I was special on my own and celebrated apart from my sister. For the workers who started at 6 a.m., perhaps it was at a deep level, they needed to know their work was valuable and appreciated by the landowner. How often do we resentfully focus on someone else and look away from our own need? What might it mean if we could acknowledge that we needed instead what we needed and allow that to be honored? Perhaps those workers would have been able to receive the truth that their labor was valued and so they were fair and they were fairly compensated for it without begrudging anyone else the generosity they received so through this story i think jesus is inviting us all to participate in this alternative economy where resources both financial and otherwise can be generously distributed so that all have what they need that's i think the summary that's the invitation the call as we begin Lent together, I'm going to challenge us to move from grasping the concept to trying to enact it. So with that, we're going to distribute a little document. And we're not going to go through it all now, but there's another handout that we're going to hand out right now. And this is a set of practices that I'm going to invite you to consider trying this week. And what you'll see is it's a set, OK? There's, three set, there's actually three sets of practices based on which character you feel that I just walked through, you're kind of most resonating with today. Now, it could be that we all have a little bit of all of them, right? We feel the place where we're the landowner, we feel the place where we're the, the person who was hired last, and we feel the place where we were the person hired first. So what we're gonna do in just a moment as we close, I'm gonna pray for us, and I'm gonna pray that God's gonna speak to us a little bit about where we kind of most resonate today. And then you're going to be invited this week to practice, for whichever character that is, three different practices, if you would so choose. You could choose three different days, do them all every day, whatever you want. One practice is to help connect you with God. One practice is to help connect you with yourself. And the third is to connect you with others. If you read through them all, you'll see there are certain pieces that are, are you know, repeat, but there are other places that are different. And so this is a place where we're just trying something. We're trying to say, can we together take this from just theory knowledge to ways that we can practically start living this out, this Lent, that we can allow these stories to actually shape our faith. So before, so you can take that with you. You can be thinking about it. We'll also put it in the email tomorrow. Um, we'll be doing a, a special email with practices each week uh, throughout Lent. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll uh, move into our time uh, to chat a bit. 
Spirit, we thank you for the way that you are present and that I believe you are a God of equity. You are a God who wants to um, make sure that we all have what we need and who gives it generously and abundantly. And I also am grateful that I believe you are a God who calls us into that work. Doesn't just do it for us, but calls us to be the hands and the feet that make it happen. And so God, we ask that you would be present with us this Lent as we try to move forward into taking action in ways that are shaped by your teaching, by your stories, and embodying this kind of equitable living. We just take a moment to listen, and I invite you to kind of be discerning with the spirit, seeing if you feel like you have a sense one way or the other from your inner knower, um, or what you might consider the voice of God speaking with you, um, where, where you feel like you really resonate today. Do you feel like you're in that place where God is inviting you to imagine what resources you have to participate in the work of equity? Do you feel like you're in that place where you've been left behind and need to receive that, that encouragement that God sees you and God is for you? Do you feel like you've been struggling with resentment in some area in your life? And perhaps you need to lean into um, discerning what that unmet need might be. God, we thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that you meet us where we're at and you speak to us in different places. So wherever we're resonating today, may we find you and may we find um, growth and meaning in practicing from that place this week. Amen.